The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Last week, I started uh, reviewing some of the basic instructions for our practice, both our formal sitting practice and also daily life practice. It always seems good in September to come back to some of the basics. And it's actually quite useful not just to hear it, but even one of the skillful things you can do at the beginning of a sit as you settle in, feeling grounded in your posture, on a chair, on the floor. And then just take a minute, two minutes maybe at the most, and just remind yourself what you're doing. There's a tendency, at least for certain personality types, to want to rush right into the practice. But actually, it's useful to be able to articulate, even on a conceptual level, of course, what it is you're doing. There's just so much idealism that gets, you know, we get caught up in, in terms of our spiritual practices. And uh, fundamentalism, parentalism, you know, like kind of feeling we've got to, you know, we have this basic sense, I'm bad, i got to work hard to be good. And so when we remind ourselves what we're doing, that will come out. It's not like that articulation is going to be perfect but its imperfections will be useful for us to hear. Oh, that's interesting. You know, it's interesting that this is what the mind thinks it's doing now. So what do we think we're doing? Or what do we think this practice, this path of awakening, this practice of Buddhist mindfulness, what is it that we're asking the mind to do? So I... Last week I offered this basic acronym. Of course, it's not enough just to remember RAIN, R-A-I-N, but it's lifetimes of understanding what recognizing the way that it is actually is as an experience. I mean, conceptually, it makes a lot of sense. We'd want to recognize, oh, this is how it is now. But, you know, the Buddha... When he's talking about recognition or a moment of mindfulness, it's not an ordinary thing. It's simple, but it's extraordinary because it's like when we're having a moment of seeing now, all of us, most of us have our eyes open. Even if your eyes are closed, you're still seeing something. But it's not easy for us to notice seeing in and of itself without the conceptual overlay, without the mind's perception or interpretation of what is being seen. But just to see means that it's actually a sensitivity to shape and color and form. And that's what seeing is. Hearing, it's not, oh, that's Mark talking. That's a thought being known. But hearing is just the actual physical sensitivity to sound vibration. You know, the pitch and the texture of the sound, the tone, percussive elements, sensation, you know, just the hardness or softness, the warmth and coolness, the flow of the sensation, 
So when we're recognizing any element of experience, whatever it might be, whether it's a mental phenomena that's being recognized, thought is just a thought, emotion, just emotion, or a physical element like sound or sight or sensation or smell or taste, whatever is being recognized in the moment, we're not confused by the mind's conceptual overlay or conceptual projection, what we're perceiving or what we're recognizing in terms of the concept. Of course, we can't stop the mind from recognizing in this conceptual way. You know, when I see somebody I know, I see Pierre, it's like that stuff comes up. The memory of what I know about this person will just come up, and I, I can't stop it. But seeing can still be seeing, hearing can still be hearing, sensing in terms of the tactile experience can still be that. And then the memory, the thought, oh, that's Pierre, you know, he's this way, that can be seen as just a thought, just a movement of mentality, movement of thought. So that's what recognize means. And then to, it's not enough just to have a moment of mindfulness, that direct, immediate, Knowing, knowing of thought, knowing thought is just thought, sensation is just sensation, sound is just sound. But to sustain that, to have continuity of mindfulness, we have to keep accepting whatever we're directly, immediately knowing in the moment, and we have to remain interested. That's really where the continuity of mindfulness comes from. The mind is relaxing. In a way, as a sensory creature, you know, we're extremely sensitive. You see, we notice this more in animals. We, Because of our habit of being caught up in our thoughts about things, we forget that we're like all those other creatures that are profoundly sensitive. I was up on Madeline Island, and uh, my last day, Friday morning, uh, an owl, I, I heard it at night, but then uh, it was still around in the morning as... The sun came up, and it. Uh, I was the cabin was in sort of an open field, and it probably liked it to hunt. So it would sit on the branches, and I could watch it. it. Kind of flew from branch to branch, but I just watching it and getting a sense of how profoundly sensitive an owl is. Like hearing, seeing. I'm not even sure. I don't know that much about owls, but you just get the intuitive sense that this creature is really listening. It's really there. And we're the same way. We're profoundly sensitive. And part of the practice initially is just unpacking this, just being willing to be as sensitive as we are. So in a way, we're dropping the defenses of our thinking. By staying caught up in our thought, we feel safe because our thoughts, our ideas about things are somewhat familiar. And even though they may be stressful, our judging, our planning, our worrying, our wondering, our fantasizing. It might be stressful, but it's still familiar. So when we drop the mind's identification with the thinking, it's not like we can shut it off, but we can drop our identification and be interested in the more direct, immediate sensing through sight, through sound, through sensation, Then a whole other world opens up. And then if we can sustain that by being interested in it and accepting it, relaxing with it, not being afraid of the sensitivity, 
You know, we feel a little naked and exposed and vulnerable when we're in that more open state. It's okay when we're alone. It's okay when we're in a safe environment. It's not so hard. It's also easy, rather, to take it on the road through our day. That's why we practice, you know, formally in our meditation practice, we try to find a place where we do feel safe, where there aren't going to be surprises. Because then we feel willing, at least with some practice, to be in that very open, undefended, sensitive state. We're aware of everything. We're the ticking of the clock. We're even aware of that background hum that's always there in the background. We feel the vibration of the body. We feel every pickle. We feel the clothes touching the skin. Feel the breath coming in and out. Every thought, in a way, becomes more obvious. Every little worry. Every movement of the mind and the body just makes has its impact. We call this, in Buddhist practice, it's called sense impingement. It's like, we are amazingly vulnerable to the sensory world. We can't shut it off. We can distract ourselves from what's being heard or being seen or being thought or being felt in the body, but we're still exposed. So part of the practice is just learning how to open up the sensitivity this is the recognizing and accepting and being interested. This is how we open this world of sensitivity up. And from the way the Buddha uh, set up this path or described this path of awakening, by opening up, by unpacking the sensitivity, we can't help but understand the way that it is. The basic problem, you know, being the deluded depends on not being aware of how it is. So if we cultivate the sensitivity, this balanced mind that is radically sensitive, seeing things as they are, then our view, our way of being gets transformed from a deluded way of being, a way of being, a way of relating to things based on our preconceived ideas and what the culture has taught us, like one of the things we have been taught since the very beginning is that we're this individual living in the world and we really want to be part of the world, but yet we're this individual that's apart. And it's this conundrum for the mind where we have really sort of taken on this view of being apart, but wanting to be part of the whole. Anybody not feel that? you know, in all the different ways that that basic notion manifests. That's what drives us into relationships, to communities. We want to feel part. But even that notion, like, of wanting to be part is based on this very big assumption that I'm separate. I'm already a part, and I want to heal that separation. And so we get involved in Buddhist practice to heal that separation or any other kind of spiritual practice or we do therapy or we get married or we, you know, whatever, have sex. All these different ways to, you know, 
we do the exciting things to sort of lose ourselves. We play one-on-one basketball, or we knit, or we, you know, we do these things so that we can lose this sense of separation. Because we are sure we are apart, and we don't like the feeling. It's that existential angst, or loneliness, or something's not quite right. Go home at night if you live alone, or if your partner, family's gone, you go home at night, you know, and it's like that sort of raw, empty, what's this about? Who am I? Right? Doesn't it feel kind of cold and a little worrisome at the core? And we just fill up the space, try to make ourselves feel more at home. We decorate our lives with activities and things that warm it up a bit. But when those fall away for whatever reason, then we feel that kind of existential coldness, alienation, separation again. So the whole path that the Buddha sets up is, it's a challenge to that notion, really. We're challenging it by intentionally opening. You know, we're not, like, avoiding being raw and open and undefended and seeing things in a direct, immediate way. For a while, at least, we're not interested in decorating our life with these sort of conditioned activities or these neurotic activities of, like, comforting the creature we imagine is all alone and needs comforting. That's sort of the normal psychological approach to life. It's like we're trying to take care of ourselves. But we're endlessly disappointed. Like, we never can quite do it right. We never are quite perfectly secure. Maybe for a while, in moments, we get a good hug and we, we sort of feel safe for a moment, or we hang out with the right kinds of people, or have the right kind of experience, and we feel good for a while. So this path, when we're sitting, it may seem like we're just trying to quiet the mind down, or just trying to get a little tranquility, but actually, it's much more radical than that. You know, we're sitting, and we're, we're uncovering this natural capacity just to recognize things directly, it's always these six things. Seeing is being seen. You know, sights are being seen. Sounds are being heard. Sensations are being felt. Taste and smell are being tasted and smelled. And thoughts are being known. Thoughts are being thought. It's always that. It's never more complicated than that. It seems more complicated than that. But it's because the mind has gotten identified with the content of thought. So... Coming into the, a moment of recognition is just cutting through the complexity and realizing sights are being seen, sounds are being heard, sensations are being felt, thoughts are being known, emotions are being known, and that's it, moment by moment. And if we can keep accepting that that's how it is, softening, yielding, and staying interested, if we just accept, we'll just get really tranquil, fall asleep. So we have to accept the way that it is, but we also have to remain interested. Some sense that this is the most important work a human being can do. I mean, once we have our basic survival taken care of, 
this is the most important work that we can do, is to sustain this balanced, open attention, because it undermines all of our deluded tendencies to see the world, to understand the world in particular ways that we were conditioned to understand things. Like, I'm no good. I'm a part. I'm better than the rest of you. Or whatever conditioned patterns your mind has that in one way or another keeps us in this separate place. And we're always trying to solve that problem, but we're trying to solve the problem based on the assumption that I'm separate. So it never works. We never find the solution. We're endlessly frustrated. So instead, we take up this other path where we're, be we're beginning with a who knows, right? We're going to check it out directly. We're not going to assume anything. We're not going to assume that I am an individual. I'm not going to assume I'm not an individual. I'm just going to cultivate a radical, simple presence, sensitivity, and discover directly what it is, how it is. Is there this thing that's apart from the whole or not? But we're not going to answer it by thinking about it, like what philosophically makes more sense to us, because we'll never get anywhere. We have to actually do direct research, in a sense, or direct experimentation with this mind, this heart, this body. And that's really what RAIN represents. It's this paradigm shift from always neurotically assuming that I'm here as I imagine I'm here, and the angst that I feel needs to be addressed from this point of view of being who I think I am, needing what I think I need, fearing what I think I'm afraid of, and addressing it on that level, that relative conventional level. Instead of doing that all life long, you put aside some time to challenge that, to really start over again. Well, how is it to be a human being? So we're like learning to settle into this sensitive creature as it actually is. No preconceived ideas, no conceptual projections on our experience. Now, the mind is still going to think, because that's what the mind does. We don't have to make thinking the bad guy. But when the mind thinks, we practice not being confused by the thoughts instead of trying to stop the thinking. A lot of meditators waste a lot of time by trying to stop the thinking. But the work isn't to try to stop the thinking, but not to be confused by it. And then it might quiet down, or it may not. But in any case, we're learning not to be confused by it. Oh, it's just thoughts. Like somebody left the radio on. You know, it's just, it's just that endless narration or dialogue or whatever it might be. You know, when you're at the airport and somebody's speaking another language that you don't understand, you don't have a problem. But it's not so easy to be in earshot of a conversation, because even if we don't want to be drawn in, even if we think it's stupid, the conversation, or it's none of our business, it's like we can't help but get drawn in. So it's a skill we need to learn, like just letting the mind, the thinking mind, do what it does. And the way we do that is we just recognize, oh, it's just thoughts being known. It's just thoughts being known. And to accept and to be interested in it as a natural phenomenon, not as a personal phenomenon.
And this really goes to the N in RAIN, which is the non-attachment or non-identification. We can't force that. We can't imitate it, as I mentioned last week. But we can remember to, look, is this thinking personal? You know, like, you know, whatever thoughts you have, like, oh, it's Sunday night, i got a hard day tomorrow, I'm tired. And then you can even repeat that back. Having had the thought, oh, it's Sunday night, tomorrow morning is Monday, got a hard day coming. It's like this. You know, you see that that arising of that particular thought of whatever that was for you. You know, it's of course it's just a natural phenomenon. You didn't make that happen. It arose because of this very elaborate, intricate conditioning that the mind has. This great interdependent conditional thing we call our mind, and then the thought arises. In the same way. You know, weather is very complicated and interdependent, and out of that comes a little breeze. And it might come in your living room window and touch your cheek. But it isn't personal. You're aware of it, but that breeze, you know, has infinite number of causes and conditions. In the same way a thought or an emotion arises, or a sensation arises, or you have a particular attitude now, feeling about being here at Common Ground. Is that personal? Did you make that happen? Are you are you kind of maintaining that attitude or emotion or whatever it is you're feeling right now? All we can really say about these things when we're really honest is that they're being known. This attitude, this sensation, this sound, this sight is being known. And then it's just a question of is the mind accepting of it? Is it interested in it? You know, really, acceptance and interest are really the same thing. Because we can't really accept something without being interested in it. We have to actually be close, intimate with something, some experience in order to accept it. We can't theoretically accept something. We can only accept something if we're close to it, really touching it, really being, in a sense, impacted by it or allowing it in. Then we can accept it. So being interested is the same as being accepting. And it's what really makes, brings mindfulness alive, this R for recognition. It really comes alive when we're accepting and interested. And then we can ask the question, is this personal or impersonal? Should I be attached, identified, or non-identified, non-attached? And this is what evokes this fourth part of our practice, the non-attachment part. And this is where freedom lies for us. It's not, you know, we don't get freedom when life becomes perfect and we've got all the ducks in a row, we've got our body in shape, we've got our livelihood in shape, we've got the friends we like and we somehow have managed to get rid of the friends and relatives we don't like. And, you know, all the things. We don't think the thoughts we don't want to think. This is, the, it's, a, it's a kind of uh, oppression, this idea that we can get it all together, get our life together. And we imagine that some of the people in the room have it together or more together than us. And we're so envious of those people. And actually, we don't think it's fair because they probably have had an easier time of it. That's why they have it all together. That's what we imagine. And the people who 
have it less together than us, we probably feel like they deserve it because they haven't worked as hard. If only they worked as hard as we did, they'd have it more together. So they deserve their screwed up life or whatever. This is the kind of stories we tell each other because when we have the idea of perfection, it's a very competitive world. Perfection is a relative thing. We feel better when our life is more perfect than other lives, don't we? And we feel worse when we think our life is less perfect than other lives, less attractive, less healthy, you know, less old or less young. So this practice, the way that we experience freedom in this practice is really understanding uh, we don't have to take on that whole perfection trip and all the suffering it involves. There's a way, a more profound way to uh, go beyond our existential angst and anxiety and this sort of endless neediness, always needing more, never fully satisfied. There's another way, which is the path of mindfulness, of opening, radically opening, and realizing that life can be fully trusted as it actually is right now. Like, I mean, this is just a question, but how do we know this isn't okay? How do we know that this moment isn't okay? Or that it should be better than it is? Are we convinced now, do we have proof that we're not happy? Now, I know we think we're not happy, or we think we could be more happy if this got done, or if I got rid of that. So we want to, you know, a moment of mindfulness, and then moments of mindfulness is really challenging this notion. I mean, it's amazing when we're just sitting aware of the body, sitting aware of the breath, sitting aware of hearing, or just walking, or just brushing our teeth. It's amazing to discover actual contentment. It challenges us. You know, mostly we miss these moments because we don't believe in them. We don't believe they're true. It's like, oh, I can't be content because I'm not perfect yet. I haven't dealt with that mess in my basement. You know, so I can't be happy. I can't be satisfied. You know, I'm still married or I'm not married. You know, I don't have a partner. How can I be happy? How could I be content? It's not possible. I haven't saved for my retirement yet. So we keep assuming that we're not happy. But part of what we're doing when we're meditating and then out into the world, when we take our practice out into the world, is we're profoundly challenging that notion. Can walking from our car to our office be enough? Enough for perfect contentment, the full experience of satisfaction, ease, fullness, full love for self and other. No boundaries. You know, we just assume, well, I can't. You know, I'm just going to work. It's Monday morning. That is such a powerful belief that we have. 
this, I'm a suffering human being. I'm an imperfect suffering human being who's trying to get his act together. That notion, is, we are so identified with that notion. So with mindfulness practice, we're recognizing how much sense it makes. And so we begin to be willing to challenge that, like to be willing to sit up, you know, as a formal ritual of sitting meditation, that we sit up on the chair or sit up on the cushion, you know, we have this integrity in our posture and this powerful release. We're not holding any tension. We're softening the face and the belly and the buttocks, the whole frame. And we're not doing anything in particular except being sensitive to the mind, to the body, to things coming and going. Right? And this really challenges this neurotic conditioning that I'm imperfect. If I don't do something, I'm never going to be happy. What could be a more profound challenge to the sense of I need to do something to be happy? And we, you know, in that, you know, the relaxation of the body, that's the acceptance, the sort of willing to be touched by life, to be undefended. And the uprightness of the posture is that interest, like, yeah, and I want to see it. I want to see it how it, see it for how it is. I want to be awake. I'm interested, alert, bright. And then, of course, the first thing we start to wake up to is like the body's tight. You know, we've been stressed for so many years of our life. Of course, we're going to feel the residue of all that mental, physical tension in the body. And what does that do? It convinces us, it triggers us, yeah, I should fix my body. I was right, I need to do something. I am imperfect, you know, because it's really unpleasant just sitting here like this. I'm totally bored, or I'm totally frustrated with the pain in my body, or I'm totally confused about what I'm supposed to be doing. And so, over, moment by moment, in different ways, the mind is going to be triggered to do something, right? And so, meditation practice, mindfulness practice, is learning to recognize all of those triggers, all the little hooks dangling around, and not take them. We don't have to bite the hook. We have to see them. They're there. So we have to recognize them. We have to accept them. We have to be interested in them. But we don't have to take them personally. So the little dangling hook about, do you have your act together? Are you ready for Monday? You know? We could take it personally. I don't think I am ready for Monday. Or we could just say, oh, that's just a thought. That's just a worry. And maybe that thought, we relax with the thought, and we realize there's this whole ocean of anxiety behind the thought. Like, I don't have anything together in my life. I haven't ironed my clothes. They're not even washed, you know. The bathroom's dirty. I told my boss I'd have this done, and I'm not ready. You know, and on and on like that. And we just realize this whole, it's like a wave hitting us. But that's just a wave of anxiety hitting us in that moment. Because in this moment, you know, we put aside our half an hour or hour to sit. And then we've already decided this time is not about doing anything. This time is about waking up to how it is. So we're not going to do anything anyway. And besides, we've wasted countless hours not doing what we're supposed to be doing. So one more hour of not doing all the things we neurotically think we should be doing, 
is not going to kill us. So instead, we're going to experiment, which is being there with all the different waves of anxiety, all the little dangling hooks you should do, you should have done, you need to apologize, you haven't called your mom in two weeks, you know, what kind of son or daughter are you? And we practice being fearless and awake, and we start to learn slowly that all of these dangling things, that's just the nature of things. That's just what the mind and body experience is like. It's not personal. It's always this way. There are always dangling hooks, things that we can get neurotically involved with. But we don't have to. And so then, as we learn not to take any of it personally, then when we do decide to go clean the bathroom or brush our teeth or call our mom or whatever, then it's not because we're sort of acting out these neurotic fears or anxiety, but because we care about something. It can be just a, a beautiful movement of love or compassion or joy, just doing what needs to be done, just taking care of everything like a movement of nature instead of a movement of a neurotic human being. But that, we can't get too direct, like we can't imitate that. Like I want to be that cool guy that isn't afraid to get old or isn't afraid to be alone or isn't afraid to be imperfect. You know, we all want to be the person that can laugh off things and, you know, really comfortable in our skin, but we can't fake it. You know, we don't get to be that person by wanting to be that person. Actually, wanting or needing to be that person brings us the other direction, doesn't it? You know, there's, there's nothing more insufferable than wanting to be cool. <laughs> I mean, nobody wants to be around anybody, including ourselves when we want to be cool. Because it's not cool to want to be cool. <laughs> it's not cool to be, you know, to want to be smart or even spiritual or kind. To want to be kind isn't like, you know, it's, it's thinking. <laughs> but when somebody's actually, naturally, organically kind, it's the greatest thing to be, if, if it arising in your own body and mind, or to be around, if you're around somebody who's kind but not trying to be kind, funny but not trying to be funny, you know, wise but not trying to be wise. And this is what happens when, instead of being a neurotic being, it's just nature happening. And when we're nature happening, it doesn't mean we don't make mistakes. It just means we're not confused by the mistakes, taking them personally. We just understand, like when we say something and we're being defensive, then at some point there's just an understanding, oh yeah, that's defensiveness, it feels like this. And part of that recognition of defensiveness is understanding, of course it's arising that when the conditions are like this, when the mind is blinded in this way, then these neurotic tendencies get acted out. And so right in that understanding is the forgiveness, because it's not personal. So it's not about being perfect in the sense I can't make mistakes. It's just that when mistakes happen, 
when we're not perfectly skillful, the mind understands, well, yeah, that's what's, that's what's happening now. And this is what we're doing in our sitting practice, you know. We do get caught. I mean, there are people in this room that have been practicing 20 years now. I've just had my 30th anniversary, I think I mentioned last week, sitting practice. And still, you know, after many years of practice, still, you know, my mind gets distracted. I get caught up in fantasies and fears and, you know, the whole range of human experience, neurotic human experience. But one of the things I notice now is I don't have such a problem with being a bad meditator, you know, being an imperfect meditator with a wandering mind. It's not such a big deal. And I'm noticing a lot of peace and uh, brightness and ease in my mind and body, even when my mind is all over the place, because I'm not turning it into a problem. We don't have to make the movements of our mind, the movements of our body, into a personal problem. We still have to be responsible for what our mind and body does. If I hit somebody, you know, there are consequences to that, especially as an adult. But I don't have to hate myself. If I end up hitting somebody or end up, you know, thinking it's really important to call somebody when I'm driving and then have an accident and harm somebody, you know, it's totally appropriate to feel that terrible yucky feeling of then having been unskillful. But I don't need to take that yucky feeling and generate it over and over again and start telling myself a story about being a bad human being. Instead, I can just understand that, you know, just see it as it was. This happened. The mind thought this. Did that. This happened. And now there's this yucky feeling of having made a mistake. This is how it is now. And there's a sense of space. I mean, imagine living in a way where everything we see, everything we experience ourselves doing and others doing, everything is seen as a movement of nature, not in terms of good and bad. I mean, good and bad still exist because there are consequences to what we and others do. But not good and bad in a sense of having to reject it or grasp it with the mind. You know, obviously when somebody walks in the room and starts shooting other people or insulting other people, racial slurs or other kinds of terrible things, you know, we can we be aware of that. But we can also understand the na the nature of this experience, like how causes and conditions are unfolding and this is happening. And also understand what we might do to take care of everybody in the situation. You see, it's like such a inefficient, unproductive tendency of our mind to have to turn everything into something personal. They are personally evil. I am personally offended. I don't think this should be happening. This isn't fair. We kind of create these unnecessary boundaries of good and bad, me and you, and it really gets in the way of just responding effectively in the world, taking care of what needs to be taken care of. So, you know, in the weeks ahead as we're 
taking those moments at the beginning of the sit to understand what we're doing, we we want to we tell ourselves a story that's more than, you know, I'm trying to control my mind. My mind's all over the place. I'm trying to just make my attention go to the breath and stay there so I get a little peace of mind. It's like it's too simplistic of a story. It's too parental of like trying to control things. Like if I could just control my mind, I'll be happy. That must be what the Buddha discovered, the sort of ultimate control of his mind. But it's it's a more uh, profound transformation that we're interested in. And we can start right away, both formally in our meditation practice, but also during the day, about trusting this process of opening, where we're recognizing that this is this. This is the only moment of this life right now. And it's like this. This moment is being known. That's such a profound turning. The R in rain is such a profound change from being caught in our thoughts about things to just that single moment recognizing, oh, this is it. You can just practice right now. Just understand this is it. This is how it is. This is seeing and hearing and sensing and thinking, being known. And like really that practice giving the heart, giving itself to this. Like this is our refuge. In Buddhism we call it Dhamma. The way it is, it's a refuge. It's not a problem. You know, this is not what I signed up for. But this is how it is. And we can really trust that. Really trusting this is how it is, really being interested and accepting. And, and discovering that it, it doesn't need to be grasped in a personal way. Just because this is how it is, this is all there is, doesn't mean we have to grasp it, that the heart has to squeeze or get tight. So this is the practice, sitting formally and through the day, is just to remember to recognize this is how it is. And to discover the heart doesn't need to get tight, the mind doesn't need to get constricted. It's quite amazing. It's quite alive. And one of the things we start to discover, especially in deeper moments of insight, the practice, we discover it's all happening on its own. You can even prompt this. You wake up tomorrow morning, for example, and you can just prompt it by having the thought, the intuitive feeling that, well, maybe instead of feeling i got to get myself through Monday, maybe I'll just see if Monday takes care of itself, if this mind and body and Monday and all the other forces of the universe, if they all just take care of themselves. I mean, just imagine how weird and neurotic it would be if the weather thought, God, i got to go all the way from summer to fall. What a pain in the butt, you know, to kind of, all those leaves and, you know, <laughs> but that's how that's exact we are no different we are just a force of nature in the same way everything else is a force of nature so we can begin to experiment like with a sit or brushing your teeth or living through Monday or getting yourself home even that like okay you could make that into a real personal problem get home I don't want to get mugged 
I don't want to have a weird conversation with anybody at Common Ground. I kind of like the teachings, but my life is already too busy. I'm not really that interested in any of you guys. It's like, I just want the teachings. Some people, you know, have been coming for years and years, and they just don't want to get to know anybody. That's fine. I'm not, you know, I'm not having, I don't have a problem with that. But it's just, it's like, we can turn anything into a personal problem. Like, why does anybody want to talk to me? Kind of standing around hoping somebody will introduce themselves. So we can create all kinds of personal problems. But we don't have to get tight about that. We can just let the personality as a force of nature get itself home. Have conversations or avoid conversations. You know, negotiate the entranceway. Whatever. Get through the parking lot. And just see how it can be a movement of nature, not taking it personally, not getting attached. And whatever gets triggered, you know, whatever memory or emotion, even if it's a really neurotic emotion or a really sublime, beautiful emotion, not taking any of it personally. You may float out of here like some divine being or you may be totally caught in feeling like I'm not good enough, everyone here is cooler than me. But not taking any of that personally. And that's really the, the flavor of the freedom of practice, is that we have a life, in a sense, we are going to experience whatever does arise as that natural, lawful unfolding of all these causes and conditions. But we don't have to own it as a heavy burden. As one great time master said, mountains are only heavy if you try to lift them. If you take your life personally, it gets really heavy. Having to be perfect, having to live your life perfectly, you know, being perfectly Mark or being perfectly Greg or whoever. That is oppressive. But mountains are only heavy, a life is only heavy if you try to lift it, if you just let things be, let the life live itself. We find out we actually end up being so much more skillful than when we're trying to be skillful neurotically trying to be skillful. Just being radically present, accepting and interested leads to us being much more skillful in our lives. So I'll leave it here. We have a, about 10 minutes. It'd be nice if you have any thoughts from your own practice to share with the group or any questions that come to mind. What comes up for you? Let's uh, say your names, please. I'm Steve. For me, Well, the the instructions to be to recognize this is being known, and to accept, and to be interested in non-attachment, they're basic elements that have been taught forever. But yeah, as a sort of a trick to remember, that's relatively recent. And you know, you could do it any number of ways. So if you like a word, you could probably use that and just find, translate the teachings into that particular acronym. It's not that hard to do. Yeah. But it's just a convenient way. So it's been used, you know, in just the last 20 years in the States, in the West. Mm-hmm. Or investigation. Yeah, yeah, but it's a real, 
natural kind of investigation, like letting the moment reveal itself, that sense of respect and awe and innocence even, like, wow. Thanks. Other thoughts come to mind? Yeah, say your name. Well, you know, there's a place for that. You just have, the important thing is not to be heavy-handed, but it's really useful to offer the mind, basically what you did is you offered your mind another view. You know, the, the default, because of our conditioning, the default is to have a self-centered view. That was my stuff. You took it. That wasn't right. You know, and, you know, may you burn in hell or something like that. <laughs> Be like, God, I'm so glad I'm a Buddhist and I believe in karma, you know. And may it come quickly <laughs> with vengeance. <laughs> but, you know, we can offer our mind another view. And the thing about what we call in Buddhism right view, like a view that's in alignment with the way things are. Wrong view is simply a way of seeing things or understanding things that doesn't fit the way it actually is. And I'm suggesting, and the Buddha suggesting that, like an example of wrong view is to feel separate, and to feel apart, and to get attached, that that feeling doesn't line up with reality when you pay close, balanced attention. So you can offer your mind another view, and then you just try it on for size, and if it's right view, it will feel right. Not necessarily initially, but if you work with it, it kind of lines up. So, like your example was, well, you know, I hope whoever took this, I hope that it brings some real joy. Now, the reason that lines up is it frees the heart from the pain of resentment and anger, right? And so, that sense of, like, no ownership, like, was it really yours? I mean... In a conventional sense, it was yours. And in a conventional sense, if the police caught somebody taking your stuff, they would get punished, you know. But in, in an ultimate sense, is it really yours? I mean, think about people who own land or homes. Is that really ours? I've been, you know, trying not to be crazy, but as some of you know, I've been looking for land. A number of us in the community have been looking for land for a while out in the country, and it's just so interesting to observe when I was driving back from Madeline Island. It's like and looking on the websites. It's just interesting to see how the mind divides up land into like who owns this, who owns that. This could be ours. This could be mine. But that's such a funny notion. You know, mine. What does that mean? You know, and then it's like, it's like we want it controlled. Like, well, can other people walk on it? You know, I mean, are these animals mine? 
I mean, it's such a funny thing. And I, on Madeline Island, you know, a lot, there's a, if you don't know, there's a lot of cabins along the shore of Madeline Island. It's one of the Apostle Islands that's private. It's not part of the national seashore, um, the park system. And, um, you know, I guess the rule is that the people who own the shore, lakeshore property, they don't actually own the place where the water hits the land. So you can walk, you know, in front of the cabins. But it's always a little weird, like, am I on their land, my land, whose land is this? I mean, all these sort of divisions. So it's useful to play with it, to, to sort of challenge the mind. Like, that tight notion isn't the only way. The sense of being violated by theft. Do I have to live with that just because it's our conventional reality? No. We can have another view like, you know, I didn't actually own that in an ultimate sense. And who knows who should really have that ultimately? You know, as long as it was in my possession, I should enjoy it, appreciate it. But knowing that things come and go. Like, are we really responsible that we were born in such and such a place and had such and such an education and got this job so we could afford to pay and buy this stuff? And somebody else, I mean, when you look at it, it, none of it makes sense in an ultimate, the possession, the idea of possession doesn't make sense in an ultimate sense. We live in this conventional world. I'm not saying that we shouldn't respect boundaries and possessions, but we don't need to suffer because of them. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, fun. Um, don't you find some suffering in that walking sometimes? Because I do. I mean, yes. Okay. <laughs> I finally, I kind of drop it now. I mean, um, I be with it, I recognize it, but it's so uncomfortable, I have to let it go. Especially yeah. because I really walk. Next time you pick up a catalog, this is such a good practice, because we think of it as such an innocent thing, and unless you're really vigilant, you end up getting hundreds every month. You know, you got to constantly tell people you don't want their catalogs. And uh, but when you pick it up, notice what you like. Notice how painful it is to be looking at every item and wondering, do I need this? Do I want this? It's really painful. Yeah. Did you have a thought? Yeah, I thought I understood. A little louder. Yeah, and the talk might have been a little heavy-handed in that way. And I think it's useful to um, get interested in the, your actual experience of the release and happiness of the heart and 
the tightness and constricted, contracted states of the heart and mind. And just start kind of observing like what, when the mind does feel connected and light and happy, what view, what is it doing that supports that ease and that well-being? And when the mind's tight and contracted in some way, what is it doing that's supporting that? Because that's what we learn in, in meditation practice. We're sort of sitting, and it's like w- the whole world opens up in front of us, and we just see how the mind gets itself into constricted, contracted, suffering states, and how the mind ends up in really beautiful, buoyant, happy states. And we start to connect the dots. Like We start to see what activity, what I'm calling neurotic, what activity leads to the contracted states, and what states, what I, what I would call wise or wisdom, leads to feeling buoyant and light and connected and free. So that's all. We're, we're basically using our direct experience to teach us the one lesson we need to know. So instead of assuming that it's out there that's causing our happiness or suffering, we're really discovering that it's the attitude or the view of the mind. When the mind is in a particular framework or a particular view, then life is oppressive. When the mind has a different view, life isn't oppressive. This is a good place to end. Say 30, so we'll just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Maybe take a breath or two breaths together. Just appreciating that our predicament as a human being is shared. We're in this life like so many human beings have been are right now. So we can willingly tap into the wisdom and the compassion of the human beings that have lived their life before us and passed on their wisdom, their good wishes. And we can join that stream of wisdom and compassion by developing our own wisdom, our own compassion, greasing the road for those to come. Thanks everyone for coming tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.